The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It is one of the great joys of my life to come into the presence of a people like this gathered to worship God, hungering to hear the Word of God. In such a place, I don't feel like we need a long, lengthy introduction. We just need to dive into God's Word together. So I want you to open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're reading this morning verses 11 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. It's a worshipful thing when I see people with their Bibles or their devices open. I want to encourage you to keep them open after we read as we walk through the text. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, we want with everything in us that you would be glorified with our lips and our lives and our attitudes and our thoughts. And Lord, how could we ever keep our way pure? We know it has to be by keeping it according to your word. Don't let us be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And you told us, Lord Jesus, in your prayer, you asked, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so we join that prayer. Even, Lord Jesus, as we see you reigning on high, interceding for us, sanctify us in your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're starting a new section in this letter of 1 Peter. I think we need to remember together what the theme of this letter is. Chapter 1, verse 1, he said, I'm writing to people who are the elect exiles. That is, those who have been chosen according to God's foreknowledge, set apart by the sanctification of the Spirit to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. That's who you are. And then he said in chapter 5, verse 12, the reason I'm writing this is I'm exhorting you that this is, this letter, is the true grace of God. Stand in it. So what we said, bringing those two themes together, is that the, the theme of the letter, the melody of the letter that you keep hearing over and over, is that we are to stand in the true grace of God as elect exiles. Which means that things in this world as exiles are going to be so challenging because Christians don't fit here. We're not home here. We have another world, another home, another master. 
an emperor above all else. And so we're going to find ourselves challenged living in this fallen world. In fact, as Peter now begins to lay this out, what does it look like now since we've been brought out of darkness into marvelous light, declaring his excellencies? How do we do that and stand out and shine light in the midst of a fallen world? He's going to go into very practical places that are challenging in the next three weeks. He's going to look at the political sphere. He's going to look at the social sphere. He's going to look at the family sphere and say, in these contexts, it will be challenging. But in this section, verses 11 to 12, he wants to lay out two key principles that have to be applied all the way through in all of these spheres. And the two things that he highlights are this, the war for the soul and the glory of God. If I were to put this into a a main point statement, it would be this. Christians live in a distinctive way that shines a light on these two realities, the war for the soul and the glory of God. The way that we live will shine a light, a spotlight, on those two things. We're in a war for our soul, and we are to highlight with our life and our lips the greatness of God. You see the war for the soul in verse 11, you see the glory of God in verse 12. So let's walk through it together. Look at verse 11 first. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Notice a few things here. Notice first that he doesn't just dive right into the command, abstain from the desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says, beloved, and he says you do it as sojourners and exiles. You cannot miss that. We do this as beloved children of God, and we have to know that because as exiles, it means we're going to be a target for those who are at home in this fallen world. We are going to look differently and live differently because we're exiles. Imagine if somebody moved in next door from another country that had totally foreign practices, customs, dress, What would stand out are the differences, and maybe it could have a negative spin, like that stranger ought, or maybe it could have a positive spin, like that's amazing and and fascinating. In Peter's context, for unbelievers, it is offensive. We're going to see in verse 12, they're looking at the way that you look and the way that you live, and they're scorning you as evildoers. So what's happening here? is that Peter's readers have become Christians, and now that they're citizens of heaven, they're exiles on earth. They don't fit in anymore. And 1 Peter 4 is going to say, it's not that somebody moved from another part of the world next door, and you expect that it's going to look different. It's like, you were with them, Peter says. You were living the way that 
they lived. You were talking the way that they talked. You were thinking the way that they thought. And now suddenly, everything changed. And he says, they're surprised that you no longer go with them in these things, live with them in this way. And now you're a target because you stand out as different. And whenever you stand out as different, you become a target. And so he says, you are going to experience scorn, maligning, persecution in this world. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna pull back and separate yourself from the world? Are you gonna fight back? Peter says, no, no. You can lean in because you're beloved. As much as the world is going to hate you, scorn you, malign you, slander you, say all kinds of evil against you, don't forget God's word to you. He loves you. He loves you. That means something so practically right now. Maybe you're at home on live stream and you're all alone. You don't have a family around you. You feel isolated and alone. You can see it even in our service. Sadly, with social distancing, people sitting together as family, some people have to sit alone. And you can feel isolated and you can feel lonely in that. And this says, don't forget that when you come into this space, you're not alone. Your family of God you are loved by God, even if you're hated by the world, even if you're misunderstood and maligned, don't forget your primary identity. Don't let them define it for you. Let God define it for you. You are beloved. You're God's children. It's His work that made you exiles because you're heaven's citizens. Did you notice that what we call positional sanctification comes before progressive sanctification. Let me define my terms. Positional sanctification is something that God does when he delivers you from the dominion of darkness and transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son. So now everything positionally has changed. You were at home fitting in with the world, thinking like them, living like them, conformed to the world. Now God did something. He picked you up, put you into his family, into his kingdom, and now everything's different. Everything's new. And because of that, that is, because you're now exiles and sojourners in this world, fitting as your home only in heaven and feeling out of place here, therefore, you're going to live a different way. You're going to look a different way. You're going to think a different way. You're going to engage in this world a different way. That's what he's saying. The command is coming, but he's saying, don't forget, this is what God has done. He's put you into this place and therefore you're in this fight. So you're no longer home because you're sojourners and exiles, but even while you're here, don't forget, you're loved by God, part of his family. Now he comes to the command. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and forget who you are, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. See that? 
abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, you are now, as a Christian, put in this world, and you are hearing a word from the world when it looks at these pleasures that are enticing your flesh. The world's message is indulge. Don't hold back. God's message is abstain. It's as if we're in this world and there are pleasures ripe for the picking and the world's saying, get as much of it as you can. Pick all that you can. And now here comes God saying, no, live according to my will. I have pleasures for you here. But they're in this place, in this field. Don't go outside of it. Abstain from these places. Stay in this place. And you can see there's going to be a clash of culture, a clash of kingdoms here. When the world looks at you and saying, why are you abstaining? Indulge. Peter says, abstain. Now, the Jews throughout history understood this, both culturally and morally. They understood it culturally because they had to abstain from things like pork. Thank God we're in the new covenant, so we're not abstaining from that anymore. Bacon is victory meat, so we need to remember that, new covenant people. But we still have some of the same moral abstention. For example, you're going to see it in 1 Peter 4. Let's look at some of the examples of what we're called to abstain from. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What's the difference? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Here it is, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. There it is. These are, this is the pattern of lifestyle of those who don't know God, and they're saying, indulge with us. And God's saying, abstain from that. And it's leading to all kinds of problems. Verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So here they are, living a certain way, picking all of these pleasures, just immersing themselves in it, and Peter says, remember who you are. Remember the will of God. Like Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God for you. This is his sanctification that you abstain, same word, from sexual immorality. So there is built into the Christian life something that understands things like sex as a good gift from God. It's not a bad thing. So is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends, doesn't it? 
It's a great thing in a fireplace contained and doing what it's meant to do, giving warmth and light. It is a bad thing outside of that fireplace if it burns outside and burns your house down. So Peter is laying out Christian ethics here to say sexuality is a good gift within marriage. Outside of it, it is going to burn your house down. Abstain. But you have to ask why. Why abstain from the passions of the flesh? If everyone else is going around picking these pleasures, Christians look and say, why are we abstaining where they are indulging? The answer is at the end of verse 11. Which wage war against your soul? Recently, we as a family were out on a walk and we were walking around our little trail and there's lots of berries to pick. Some of them are like gooseberries and those are good. Some of them look like they would be good, like these little red ones, but they're not. They're poisonous. And here's God speaking to his children and saying, why shouldn't you pick those berries in these bushes? They'll kill you. They're poisonous. It's not because God is a killjoy that he says abstain. It's because he's a loving father. Any more than if my kids were about to pick the red berries and eat them, I would say no. And it's not because I'm a killjoy. It's because I don't want them to die. I love them. That is what Peter is saying. Christians who are citizens of heaven, therefore exiles on earth, are going to live a different way because they know something different. They know the word from their father that says, that's poison, son. That's poison, daughter. Trust me. It looks good. It will kill you. Peter's saying, don't forget who you are as God's child, living in this world when everyone else is indulging, know the difference. Know where God says yes and where God says no and know God's heart in why he says yes or no. He doesn't want you to die. Your flesh is going to have desires to pick pleasures from places forbidden by God. And in that moment, what will you trust? Your flesh or your Father? What desire will you give into? Obedience to Jesus, chapter one, verse two, or obeying our fallen desires. Notice, he says, you are in a war. These fallen desires have declared war on your soul, so don't live like it's peacetime. Live like it's wartime, and there is something at stake, namely your very life. Now, what I want to do in laying out the next verse is to show you that the Christian way of living is not primarily negative, not primarily abstention, meaning don't do this. 
The Christian way of life is positive. It calls attention to something greater. Isn't that the very meaning of the word abstain? You abstain from something in order to feast on something else. You can't live by just abstaining. The question is, what are you feasting on? That now becomes verse 12. So we've had the war for the soul, now we have the glory of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is where we get really now close to what Christianity as a life is all about. Notice he doesn't just say abstain, and he doesn't just say keep your conduct good. He says honorable. What does that mean? There's one Greek word for good, means agathos, and it's kind of your generic word for good. This is not that word. Conduct, he says, is calling you to be conduct that is kalos is the word. It's a word for beauty. It's beautiful behavior. It's talking about a moral beauty. Have you ever noticed that in terms of beauty and things that are good, there's standards, right? There's things that are more beautiful and less beautiful. And then there are things that are ugly, right? It's a scale. There are things that are great, things that are good, things that are bad. In this, the Christian understands that God is the standard because he's the perfection. And therefore, the Christian doesn't just want to live in a way where you're abstaining and therefore I'm doing good and I'm better than you. I'm good, you're bad. What you're trying to call attention to is not you, but the standard of beauty and goodness and the excellencies of God who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What you're trying to do is live in such a way that you're calling attention to someone else. This is the way that life works, right? Have you ever stopped to think about what your life says about what you're living for? There are two different ways here that you could be, live like a lost person and one way that Peter's calling you to live. You could live in a way that is going after license or legalism, and both of those ways would be false. Think about what they say. License looks at where life is found, what is, what's worth going after, and it says life and joy are found outside of God and his will. Indulge in all of these pleasures, pick everywhere. Joy is found outside of God and his will. Now, obviously, many of us would look at that and say, that's obviously wrong. You're living outside of God and outside of his will. But there's another way to be lost that looks more respectable, more likely to be found in Christian churches, and that is legalism. Legalism also says that life is to be found somewhere, and here it's to be found not outside of God's commandments and God's will, but inside it. But here's a very big difference. 
Whereas the person living for license is saying, why am I doing this? These are better. These pleasures are better than God, better than his will. Legalism doesn't live in such a way that says, God is better. God is great. I'm giving in to the invitation to delight in him. Legalism lives in such a way, obeying God's command and God's will in a way that says, I am better. Join me in being better, trying harder, being smarter. It condemns other people. Here is where both of these ways of living, even though they look different, share one central blasphemy. They say that God is not fully good and bountiful and gracious and benevolent. In one, you've got to go take what you can apart from God. In the other, it's saying that God isn't this benevolent, loving Father. It's saying you've got to pry blessings out of his stingy hands. Both get God wrong. That's why when he says, keep your conduct honorable in the sight of the Gentiles. He's saying, live in such a way, not that you're saying, oh, these are better, or I am better, but God is better. Christ is better. Living for him, obeying him, finding my joy in him is better than anything else you're offering. We need to be clear about that as Christians because some people who are living out here outside of God's will, when they hear Christian preaching, they think, oh, you're trying to tell me to do this, live better, be better. You're telling me about religion. We're saying, no, 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 no. Not saying these are better or I am better. We're saying Christ is better. Live like that. I'm not telling you abstain in order to be better. I'm telling you, abstain because Christ is better and the feast that you find in him is better than you could find anywhere else. What does that do? That glorifies God. Because the way that you live with your lips and your life is calling attention to the greatness of God. That Christ is better. He's saying live like that so that as exiles on earth, citizens of heaven, you're living and thinking and talking in a way that keeps shining the spotlight on your Savior, on your King. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles beautiful, because in so doing, you're calling attention to the beauty of God, the superiority of God. Now, look at the world's initial response in verse 12. Keep your conduct beautiful, beautiful behavior in the sight of the Gentiles, so that when they speak of you as evildoers. What does that mean? It's a tragic irony here, isn't it? The way that you're living, it shouldn't be surprising that if the world as a whole is rejecting God and his will, that the way that you're living within the will of God, if they're rejecting that, they're going to reject you. Doesn't matter how nice you are, 
doesn't matter how gentle and kind you are, if you are living outside of a way that they deem acceptable, they will not accept you. They will feel guilty. They will feel like you are doing something different and calling attention to the difference. They speak of you not just as different, but evil. And here's the disorienting thing. In God's judgment, he is calling what you're doing good. In the world's system of judgment, they're calling it evil. Who are you going to believe? Whose smile are you going to live for? Are you going to live to avoid the frown of the world? Or are you going to live in such a way that you can die to the smiles and frowns of the world because you're living for the smile of your Father alone? They're not on board with this. They look at your life and you become a target as someone different. This is the world we live in now. For a while in our society, it, it was kind of an anomaly throughout Christian history. America used to be a place where the church, even with people that disagreed with it, would say it's doing good work. If people would just do what the church is saying in terms of its morals, it would be good. Church, the, the society around us would say, it, it's good not to be engrossed in immorality and drunkenness and things like that, and we want our children to learn that message, and so the church is basically doing good work even where we don't want to take part in it. In a, just a generation that has totally flipped, and now people are saying the church is doing evil work. The church is bigoted. The church is narrow. When the church speaks against things like homosexuality, the church is guilty of hate crimes, hate speech in the way that it talks about what is good. So now in just the space of a generation, with the sexual ethic changing, the church has gone from being deemed by society as doing basically good work to doing evil, perpetrating hate. So what do you do? He says, keep your conduct honorable, beautiful, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, something will happen. Look at the end of verse 12. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's start with what does that mean, day of visitation? People take it in two different ways in general. Some people say day of visitation is God's spiritual visitation in salvation. So in other words, you're going to live in such a way that your beautiful behavior is going to be the means by which people are saved. People see a different way to live, a different way to think, and suddenly they're so struck that they turn to God. He's saying in chapter three, you are to be ready always to give a reason for the hope that's in you as you set apart Christ as holy. So maybe when you do that, and you're setting apart Christ as holy, when you're living this different holy life, people are gonna be brought into it. They're gonna be so struck by the differences that they're actually one to them. This will be 
salvation. This is conversion. God visits their soul. The other view would say, no, the day of visitation is the day of the Lord. He's coming physically, not in salvation, but in judgment. That's the day of visitation. Now, what's the right answer? Normally, when I come up against two different interpretations, I don't bring them together and say there's both. Here, I think it is. Because in the letter, let's just take account of language for day of visitation. What could it be? Remember in the book of Acts, when Peter, this same apostle, goes to visit the Gentiles, Cornelius, Acts 11, preaches the gospel to them, Holy Spirit falls upon them, they become believers, and then you get a controversy that's answered in Acts 15. What do we do with these Gentiles that have become part of the church? What did they say in Acts 15? What did they call that conversion? Acts 15, 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. What did he call conversion? Visitation. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Did you know this is the same way that the deliverance in Exodus is called? Joseph, speaking at the end of Genesis, made them swear they were going to take his bones from Egypt to the promised land because he said, God's going to visit his people. So in the Exodus, when Moses begins leading the people away, they grab the bones of Joseph and he reminds them, God will surely visit you. So in this deliverance, God may do as you live this certain way with beautiful behavior and you stand out as different, they may be one to that. God will visit them and save them the way that he saved you. Now why do I think Peter has that in mind? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter 3, He's talking about a difficult situation where wives have a husband who's an unbeliever, disobedient to the word, and he says, live in such a way, good deeds, beautiful behavior, that your husband may be one without a word as he looks at your good deeds. The same word for conduct in verse 12 appears there in chapter 3, twice, verses one and two. This is conduct that's calling attention to a different world, a different savior, and they may be so struck by it that it's the means God uses to draw them to himself, and he visits their soul the way he visited your soul. So I think he's saying that is a possibility. But I think he's also saying the other point. Because the day of visitation, that phrase only occurs once in the Old Testament. And you can maybe guess where it's found. Yes, Isaiah has something to say. Isaiah 10, verse 3. What will you do on the day of punishment, Greek translation, the day of visitation, in the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? And later, Isaiah 29, in an instant, suddenly you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, tempest, flame of devouring fire. So the day of visitation could be 
when God visits your soul in salvation, or it could be the final day when physically He comes again, and there will be a day of judgment. The reason why I think He also has that in mind is because when you get to chapter 4 and he talks about this devouring fire, he talks about how the way that this persecution is coming, it's a fiery ordeal, and he says this persecution is actually part of God's will. It's actually a fire from God that will refine you. It's his refining fire. Judgment has to start with the household of God, and this fire that God has for you is a refining fire. But that same fire that refines you is going to fall upon your persecutors at the last day and it will be a destroying fire for them. So here's what I think Peter's saying. Maybe this is a new thought for some of you. Why would a life of obedience in which with your lips and with your life and with your talk, you're calling attention to your true home and your true Savior. Why does that matter? Is it just for you? Is it just individualistically you've got to live in such a way because there's a war against your soul and you want to make it to glory? Did you know that the way that you live and the way that you talk also has beyond you an impact that will happen? Some will see it and will be so struck that there will be a question mark in their mind. Why is this person that way? Even though instinctively he says they want to just lash out against it, they may be one to it. It may be what God uses to draw them. Your life, your daily obedience has eternal significance. And he says it could also be that your beautiful behavior will be part of the judgment on the final day when God vindicates you, when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and all of those evil words spoken against you will be overturned in God's court and it will be shown that you were in the right and they were in the wrong. Peter's saying your life, your daily Life has eternal significance in God's plan. Don't view it lightly. Here's the way I want to close. Sometimes I think it's easy to forget that this world is not our home. And therefore, we're not really as aware of the dangers that our soul is in. I'll give you an example. I grew up, I don't know why, I grew up loving stories about sharks and snakes. I don't know why. My, my hypothesis is because I was so stunned and impressed that God could make things that could eat you. Like, it helped me fear the Lord. Like, if God can make these things, like, how much greater is God? Because I don't want to admit that maybe there's something else wrong with me. So, I think that's why. So every time I read about a story like that, I'm just like zoned in. My wife can testify to this. Like, I read these stories. So I read this story with with great interest, actually, because I've never understood how somebody could like snakes and have them as a pet. 
So I read this story about a lady that had one of those super big pythons, and she lived with it and slept with it, and can you imagine she was single, right? So here she has this huge snake, and suddenly it, it stops eating. And she gets really worried because this happens over a long period of time. The snake won't eat. And during the same time, she doesn't think, well, I wonder if something's wrong with it because it's, it, it's not eating, but it's become extra affectionate, snuggly. So she goes to the vet. This is why I would not want to be a vet, because you have to know about snakes too. And she says, oh, um, has the, the snake been extra affectionate and, and cuddly? And she said, yeah, actually, yes. How did you know that? So did, has the snake been like stretching out next to you? Like, yes, are you some snake Jedi? How do you know that? It says, this is normal behavior when a snake is preparing for a big meal. <laughs> now, you don't have to try very hard to understand the force of my analogy, right? The book of Genesis says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. So as you live in this world, I wonder if you see it as a war. I wonder if you have invited sin into your life and it's become, you're, you're cozying up to it. You think it's not a big deal. I can have this like a, a pet sin. And this verse comes along and says, think again. Make war with sin. Don't make peace with sin. Don't cuddle up to it. Don't have a pet sin that you think, it's fine. Nobody has to know. It's not really a big deal. This verse comes along and says, it's going to kill you. Romans 8, 17, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Your obedience doesn't just have eternal significance for others, but you're not going to make it unless you realize you're in a war and everything about your life changes when you realize this is wartime. I cannot make peace with sin. I need to see my life as these dangers around me, and that means in wartime, you're more vigilant. You're not going to let yourself be duped. Kick the snake out of the house. Whatever that is for you, don't make peace with it. And understand that God has saved you unto obedience to Jesus so that you can say to the rest of the world, not, isn't this pet sin great? So that you can say, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All I have is Christ. In this world, no one accepts me like he does. No one forgives me like he does. No one satisfies me like he does. Live like that. And he will, he will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking, I'm asking right now that for unbelievers who think that life is found outside of you and outside of your will, that they would see that these things become addictions, become gods, and now put them under their thumb.
and destroy them and war with them. I pray, God, their eyes would be opened to see that there is a true life that is found in Christ alone, true forgiveness, true acceptance. I pray, God, open the eyes of some today that they would see that Jesus alone can save and satisfy and that he is better. And I pray for us who are believers already, oh God, may we repent of making peace with sin no matter what it is. May we abstain. And in abstaining from that, may we feast on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.